We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. As well, check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see hey, you all. Good morning, Scott. Uh, the the last decade in review. We're yes. talking about the last decade. Let's just kind of rewind the clock. The lost decade? Oh, what do we call these? Are these the, the, the tens? Or yeah. Like, <laughs> what would, oh, I see what you're saying. Um, the teens. Yeah. The teens? The teens We're in the, the teens, teens now. But uh, yeah, yeah, 2009. January 1st, 2009. Like if we were to sit back and pretend, and we were doing this 10 years ago, which is interesting enough, Scott. And we were, it was like, you know, catching darts. Okay, because there was more negative data at yeah. that time. We're in the midst of a financial crisis. Um, all the news was bad. It was actually the U- worst U.S. job loss in 34 years in January 2009. Mm. Uh, unemployment was up to 8%, and it was, it was actually going to get worse. Yeah. It still hadn't hit the worst in January 2009. Layoffs were unbelievable. Microsoft was laying off. Mm-hmm. Look at Microsoft now. It's actually one of the best stories right now, yeah. how they've redeveloped the, themselves. Caterpillar, there was 800,000 job losses in January 2009. Yeah. Um, you know, off the side note, uh, there was a pilot that put a plane in the Hudson, saved 155, right. 155 yeah, lives. Sully. Yeah, he's got to see uh, Captain Sully to speak, and that was quite interesting. But that's 10 years ago, believe it or not. Mm. That's hard really? to believe. Yeah, 10 years, just boom. Uh, we, the talk was about deflation at the time. And here's what I, I didn't know. I didn't know when... He became president of Barack Obama, mm-hmm. January 2009. Mm. Mm, wow, there you go. He just nice showed up. Start. Yeah. yeah, welcome to start being the president. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he gets thrown into this mess right yeah, at that time. Good. It wasn't good at that time, I remember, yeah. So I know there's been, because we, we forget about all the details. And I know there's some saying, yeah, well, you know, that financial crisis, it, they try to blame which president. And certainly he didn't mm-hmm. cause it because he kind of started then. Yeah. Um, the Dow Jones. It hit a peak of 14,164 October 9th, 07. By March 9th of 2009, it was at 6,547. It had dropped 54%. So if you had all your money in an indexed fund, not diversified, just buying an ETF, for example, it would have gone down 54%. What do you think the chances of all those people keeping that money there? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if they knew the results 10 years later, probably quite a few. <laughs> That's right. If you had that crystal ball, and I can guarantee you it was massive um, amount of money coming out of the stock market mm-hmm. at the time. Plus there was Ponzi schemes going on that mm-hmm. were just shown at that time. But I remember, you know, like, so y- you're basically pointing attention to the fact that it's been 10 years since that recession mm-hmm. and, and interest rates being that low and such. And I remember having this discussion with the both of you back then, yes. 10 years ago saying, well, how low do you think these can stay? And then after five years or so, perhaps this is the new normal. But here, you know, 10 years later, look where we still are. Yeah, interest mm-hmm. rates are still fairly low. Yeah. Okay, inflation is not a big deal. Yeah. It was actually talk of deflation back then. Yeah. Prices would actually get lower. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and that has definitely not been the case. But you know what? We were business as usual for Andy and I. Yeah. And we're seeing clients and mainly trying to keep them from jumping off the cliff. We yeah. lost a few. Yeah. They, uh, took a, they took the money out and moved it into GICs. And probably averaged since then maybe two percent a year. Yeah. Okay. Had they 
have added more money, um, they would have done extremely well. Yeah. In fact, the Dow Jones has gone tripled since then. It is now currently around 26,600-ish right now. Mm -hmm. And that is actually triple where it was back in March 9th, uh, March 2009. Mm -hmm. And that's a 15% per year return, mm -hmm. per year. In fact, had you have bought it, let's say you happen to buy it at the worst time. You put your money in the US stock market, October 9th, 2007. Mm -hmm. At the time, everything looked great, Yeah. okay? And, and, and the market started to slide, starting in 07, actually, the end of 07, throughout 08. So it's kind of inter interesting. Everybody talks about the 08, 09 crises. See, the stock market is a predictor of, of the economy. Mm -hmm. And this proves it right here, that the peak of the Dow Jones was actually in 07. It started falling way before the Great Recession. Right. And then it started to fall like crazy once, yeah. the, once there was panic selling that mm -hmm. went, took place. So had you bought it at 14,164, the index at that time, and, and currently, you th you'd think when it got down to 6,500, you'd think, wow, I would do anything just to get my money back. Yeah. And it would probably, most people would have thought it was not possible. And I know the banks, we're telling clients this is too risky, you should sell, because mm -hmm. we had some of those, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And they were encouraging people to put money in GICs. And again, that's really at the end of the day, they're, you know, part of their job is to get deposits, sure. to fund mortgages. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's currently at 26,600, and you would have made a 5.6% per year return plus dividends. Mm -hmm. So you probably would have made about a 7% rate return per year over since October 9, 2007 until now, yeah. which is pretty darn good. Yeah. You know, the, you look at that and that's a, approximately a 12 year time, 11 and a half years. And I can tell you, most people thought just, you know, I'd be happy if I made 1%. Yeah. And you actually would have made around 7% a year if you bought it the worst time. Yeah. Absolutely worst time. And if you bought it the best time, you would have made 15% return. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we talk about this a lot. Timing the market is nice if you can do it. But really what makes a difference is the time in the market. Yeah. And in this case, 12 years later from buying it at the very worst time, you still would have made a very good return well above inflation because mm -hmm. inflation at the time was less than 2%. Mm -hmm. So you would have made a 7% rate of return above inflation by buying just simply US stocks, which were out of favor at the time. Yeah. Okay. And again, even you know houses were going down yeah. in value. Like I know clients of mine back then, they were selling, unfortunately, if they had to sell their house, they lost 20% on their house. Yeah. That same house would be worth a lot more now, mm -hmm. as you know. So looking here in Canada, in that 10 years, inflation has averaged 1.7% per year. Mm -hmm. Very minor. And that's again, going to your point, Scott, interest rates have not been that high either. Yeah. Because they kind of go in tandem. There was talk uh, earlier this year of interest rates rising, mm -hmm. and that's why we had to increase our... our um, sorry, inflation rates were rising. We have to increase our interest rates. Well, that's kind of stopped. And now it's actually kind of hovering and they've actually lowered some of the mortgage rates in the five years now. Mm -hmm. uh, wages. Wages since in the last 10 years have gone up 2.4% per year in Canada, which is not bad. When you consider inflation is 1.7, you're getting higher than inflation. Mm -hmm. And But what it is interesting is, is in pensions are indexed to inflation, a lot of the pensions. So if you got Canada pension plan or if, or if you have an index pension, such as a teacher's plan, you're indexed to inflation. So then you look at what are your costs? Okay, it's one thing to say inflation is 1.7. That's the rate that they index pensions by. 
What about your costs? Well, top of the list, for those people trying to put their kids to university, this is no surprise, the inflation rate for university tuition is 3.7% per yeah, year. Yeah. It's, it's more than double the inflation rate. Yeah. And that has been the case since I started and Andy started in 1984 and mm -hmm. five. Mm -hmm. University tuition has more than doubled the inflation rate all the way through. Yeah. Um, a Toyota Corolla, just a normal car, base model, has gone up 2.5% per year. Okay, Gas has gone up 3.1% per year. Rent, if you're renting, your rent on average across Canada is average 2.93% per year. Mm. So if you're getting an index pension, you think, oh good, everything's good, it's indexed. It all depends on what you buy. Yeah. And, and boy, it's hard to keep up with your inflation rate at times. Because that mm. basket of goods that they claim is inflation may be very different than what you're really spending. So for example, if you've got this index pension and, and, you're, and you're trying to put, uh, you're, you're paying for rent. Well, your, your pension's increased by 1.7% a year and rent's gone up by almost 3% a year. Yeah. So putting in perspective, in 10 years, if, you, if university costs $10,000 for tuition, it's now costing almost no, 14,500. The same university, yeah. 10 years later. And if your rent was 1,000 a month 10 years ago, it's now 1,335 a month now. Mm -hmm. And so you have to make sure your investments keep up with inflation. I can guarantee you one thing that didn't keep up with inflation were guaranteed investments. Mm -hmm. How do you put your money into investments that, you know, like a GIC or any deposit investments? They have definitely not kept up with inflation and you would have lost to these type of things. So the stock market, if, if you were to look at this, you know, the Canadian stock market versus real estate in that time, what do you think Scott would have done better? Real estate in the last 10 years or the stock market? Uh, I think they're closer than what people think. Hmm. Oh. Not a, a very good political answer, Scott. I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was perfect. <laughs> well, interesting enough, we do live in, in uh, kind of a the, you know, greater Toronto mm -hmm. area here. And so this real estate across Canada had gone up 81%. Right. So if you're an investor in real estate in Canada, 81, certainly in the Hamilton, yeah. Toronto area, um, definitely has higher than that. The stock market was 123%. Hmm. Okay. And that's the Canadian stock market. Like I said, the US stock market was 300%. Mm -hmm. It more it tripled. So the rate of return on the Canadian stock market was about 8.5%. Real estate was about 6% mm -hmm. across Canada. Right. Again, far better than, than bonds, but it all comes back to diversifying. Yeah. You know, I, we talk to people and some people are just all gung-ho, real estate, real estate, real estate. Especially uh, when the prices start to Yeah, go no up, kidding. Right? Uh, yeah. Where were they back then? So, so at the end of the day, investors did really well in the last 10 years, but students didn't do very well at all. Yeah. Um, they had, their, their tuition kept going up. If they're renting, they're trying to find jobs. And the wages weren't keeping up with a lot of their costs, mm -hmm. like such as rent and university costs. So how do we explain the cost of university going up so high? How, how is that? Because it, as you said, it's been going on for yeah. 20 years. Oh, the, easy. The, you know, the, this type of increase. How, how do they justify that? How has that gone relatively unnoticed? Other than, of course, students complaining that they have massive debt when they graduate. Uh, mm. I don't know. That's a great question. I, yeah. I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. No. Um, it's the, you know, I certainly know the professors aren't making yeah. that kind of money. They're yeah. not getting increases. Yeah. They're getting inflation indexed. In, right. So I'm not quite sure where all this costs are coming from. Yeah. Um, so, and if anything, with the lack of books, 
Yeah. So many things are online. You'd actually yeah. think mm-hmm. the cost yeah. would actually go down. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't have to buy the books anymore. Yeah. So, um, so what you need to do from a university standpoint, if if you can't beat them, um, in in terms of your wages and stuff, you got to start putting money in RESPs. Yeah. Okay. RESPs are the answer, and I'm going to go over a scenario of how you can fight back against those high university increases. All right, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. Talking about planning for your education or your kid's education. Right. And we're just saying how the uh, the inflation rate for tuition yeah, it's is literally... the roof. It's, it's nuts. Yeah, yeah, it's double the inflation rate in Canada. So what do you do? Like I said... Fight that by putting money into RESPs, Registered mm-hmm. Education Savings Plans. The government's willing to give you $7,200 for any program. It doesn't have to, it can be college, edu- um, it could be university, college, any type of school, even mm-hmm. uh, even out of country. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it doesn't have to be, as a lot fairly loose guidelines there, as long as it's post-secondary, mm-hmm. even part-time. And so they got $7,200 with your name on it, waiting to use for education. But there's a trick. You have to put money into it. Yeah. So you go $2,500 is the maximum per year. So if you did put $2,500 in, you would get 20% back, which is 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. You could do that till you're about 14 and a half years. And then you've used up their 7,200. Mm-hmm. Well, that's $7,200 of the government's money at 5% would grow to $12,500 mm. of basically free money. Yeah. Plus the fact that you were putting in the 2,500 until they're 14, that would grow to another 62,000 mm-hmm. by the time they're 18. At the, I'm only using 5% here. So there's $75,000 sitting in an account oh. waiting for the kid's education. Now, who can afford this? They got mortgage payments. They got car payments. They want to do stuff. They want to still have a life. They're young. They want to maybe take the kids <laughs> to Disney. Who can afford this? My, my, my suggestion, you're the grandparents. Mm. It is harder than ever right now for millennials to get ahead, okay? Um, and it's been proven. If you look at millennials right now, 2016 numbers, their income is 44000 a year. Not, you know, they're, after inflation, they've actually done better than the Generation X, which are, and by the way, millennials are age 25 to 34 mm-hmm. at this stage. Generation X in 1999, same age group f- back then, they would have come out of school you know, or had a job earning around on average 33000 and baby boomers, that's uh, Andy and I and you, Scott, mm. um, in 1984, same age group, 25 but to 30. But we're really late, late we're <laughs> really, We're right at the very <laughs> most extreme edge of it. You like got it. Like maybe six months. We're Generation X boomers. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, or baby boomer Extra X's. boomer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, someone with a bit of a flash to it. Yeah, it's, it's got to be cool. Anyway. Interesting enough is the baby boomers were 33.3. They're actually, after inflation, came out doing better than the Generation X. The millennials are doing far better after inflation at 44,000. But where where the, this is all nice, interesting stats, but who had more money to spend? You could 
buy a house as a baby boomer and the average mortgage back then was 67,000. So if you, you had, again, this is adjusted for inflation. If you had two people making the average income of 33,000, one times your annual income. You're there, yeah. No problem, piece of cake. I think that's where being a late boomer backfired because yes. that whole real estate cycle started with the early boomers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we inherited as yeah. the late boomers yeah. <laughs> the higher house yeah. prices, well, the higher came. interest rates, right. everything else. Yeah. We got into the Generation X a bit yeah. more. So, but so then the, the Generation X weren't terrible. Their average mortgage was 117,000, which was almost two times their incomes. Mm-hmm. If you had two people making 33,000 a year, 1.8 times. The millennials today, and this is where it's really tough, their debt on average for mortgage is 218000 And this across Canada, it's obviously a lot worse than the GTA right here yeah. in the greater Hamilton area for that matter. Two and a half times, so two and a half years of two individuals making 44000 a right. year. So it is way worse for a millennial for extra cash mm-hmm. to really live. And there's a lot of stress. And when you that. think about it, education, the price of education has been a huge factor. Yeah, in that. And that is actually mm-hmm. right, right yeah. in this article that yeah. I was reading. So education is causing part of this and the house prices and there's the rent. So there's all these factors hurting the millennials right now. And then we, we're here, we are on the radio saying, yes, you should get an RESP. Yeah. This is where I'm getting at. <clears throat> what gra- this is where grandparents really should step up. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you want to leave a bunch of money? Do you want me to give you some phone numbers? <laughs> <laughs> Leave a bunch of money or buy some, some gift that they won't even know what you bought them six months later. Yeah. Put it, put, buy some gift anyway, but put some money into an RESP. Mm-hmm. It, you cannot, they will be so thankful when they're 18 thinking, oh gosh, it's so great that you know, my grandparents yeah. got me this. It's helped me with my education rather than what was that thing they gave me when yeah, I was five? Really. Yeah. So I can't stress this enough. So any of those grandparents listening there, make sure you look at the RESP route. And while we're talking about grandparents, I know you're also on the Oz, they got to look after their own retirement too. That's right, financing your retirement. And I know last week we were talking about just the process, I was calling it creating the cash flow you need and financing your retirement. And uh, and I sort of got halfway through that that concept last week. And uh, actually I got, I got an email from uh, a listener saying, wait a minute, you've got a guy can you just explain to me why you've got a guy with a, re- a retirement pension coming in who's driving a bus mm. part-time mm. for 16000 a year? Mm. I don't, and I said, well, the, the answer is, is that um, as people, there are certain people that are, we call them maybe type A, mm-hmm. that do like to keep busy. And if they're not doing something on a regular basis or something to look forward to, then they tend to get uh, a little bit stir-crazy. Yeah. So... <laughs> I've got, I've got a neighbor the same way, just yeah. retired within the year, neighbor at the cottage, retired within the year, saw him this past weekend, and uh, he's he's uh, driving a shuttle for one of the car dealers. Yeah, that's a, and, right, and right. Does it like three days a Curtis week and shuttle? loves it. Great job. Yeah, yeah. He loves it, yeah. Oh, yeah, be great. No stress, and, you show up, you go, you yeah. do your job, and you leave. Yeah, yeah. you got to You got to people to stories. talk to. Yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's yeah. what he said. He <laughs> talked about it. He goes, you wouldn't believe the stories I hear. And he's a former chiropractor. He used to oh, have his own business, got out of it. Nah, you know what the heck, I want to do this. So it's so it's often the case that, I guess, the people don't necessarily, they don't really need the money, but mm-hmm. a lot of times it's just because of their men. Their, um, their state of mind that get, they got to do something. So one of the, when I, we talk about creating retirement income and, you know, retirement and the process of retirement is fascinating to me. And it's something that, you know, I've observed and Don, I've observed for the, 
uh, observed for the last 34 years. And no two retirements are the same, mm-hmm. but there are common things. And um, and I think one of the one of the things, and I sort of call it like the sweet spot, but it's trying to understand how much can I spend uh, because too much, too often, I, it seems to me that we all, more people make the mistake of not spending enough. Right. And it's just that fear of the what ifs and running just out. in case or running yep. out. And so we tend to underspend in the period of time when we have our health and we can do things for fear of running out. We might need it later on or mm-hmm. leaving an estate. There's a, there's a number of different issues. But um, so the process of, of it, from my perspective, is trying to explain to people what is the sweet spot? How much can you take and be able to enjoy the things today? We call it, you know, the go-go years of mm-hmm. retirement and then the slow-go year phase and the no-go phase. Mm-hmm. And and how much can you spend in each of those and still be confident about your overall retirement? Mm-hmm. But in terms of creating that retirement income, the, the, the process that we look at that we talked about last week is involves, it's a number of steps, but really if you think about it as a wheel, the first place is calculating your retirement income. And then we estimate what your retirement expenses are going to be. We determine if there's any gap. Uh, the next thing is understanding the withdrawal rates. And then uh, what is the longevity or sustainability of that withdrawal rate? And then understanding what products and, uh, and planning alternatives would make sense. Then you come full circle back to that process and revisit it and adjust it regularly on an annual basis. Yeah. So as we get into the, and we talked about a lot of different issues around that in terms of your understanding where you are and what you're going to spend. But now we're at the point where we're looking at those income sources and trying to create a plan for efficiency as you think about that money coming in, creating what we call your retirement paycheck. Mm -hmm. And there's really two sources of income. The first one we'll call it the guaranteed sources of income. And the second one we'll call asset-based income. Mm -hmm. So under the guaranteed sources of income in retirement, what would you think of? Uh, your pension. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff that comes in Canada on a regular plan, monthly basis. Canada yeah. pension plan, old age security, the defined benefit pension plan from your employer, mm-hmm. and of course, perhaps an annuity. So those are all guaranteed sources of income. Um, they are typically, they're going to last your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you die early, there may or may not be a, an additional amount paid out to your estate. But we can certainly work with that because we know that's a set amount. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other would be asset-based income. So this is income going to be derived from your personal investments. It's going to be income derived from your RRSP assets maybe converted to a RIF. Right. It's going to be income from your uh, tax-free savings account, income from non-registered investments, and also from that uh, the pension plan, but in this case, the defined contribution plan. Because the defined contribution plan, you're basically putting in an amount yeah. to an investment, the employer's matching it, and you end up with a pile of money at the end, and now you have to figure out how much from that asset do I take on a regular basis. So, in terms of the guaranteed income, that Canada pension plan, the Quebec uh, or Quebec pension plan, they provide regular monthly income. It's based on entitlements based on your past contributions and the length of the contribution period. You have to apply in order to get to begin receiving the payments, and that includes applying for income splitting as well. So Canada pension plan. Old age security, again, is a regular monthly income, but it is income tested. And so you have to be aware of the clawback. And we talked about our bus driver scenario last week and the clawbacks associated with that. And then the pension plan under the employer-sponsored programs, the defined benefit pension plan provides that guaranteed income. And, uh, and then there's a group, might be a group RRSP at work as well. So that's going to be an asset-based income. 
And then a deferred profit sharing plan is another uh, type of source of asset-based income as well. So all of those will come into play as you create your retirement paycheck. And then under the other, another asset-based income would be your RRSPs. Mm -hmm. And so the one thing about just reminder, RSPs, the basics, but you get immediately, you get immediate tax relief when you right. put money into an RRSP and the purpose is for a long-term focus, let that money sit there as long as you can. And you get the benefit of compound growth on those tax dollars that you otherwise would have paid. So you've got more money working for you up right. front and you want to leave it there as long as possible. So all, all in it basically means pay less tax, save more for retirement and increase the peace of mind around that as well. So what should you know about RRSPs? Uh, you know, I think a lot of it's the one, that's the one area where a lot of people have some pretty good working knowledge, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what's the contribution deadline, 60 days after the end of the year, March mm -hmm. 1st, typically. What's the contribution limit? Well, it's around 26 grand, 18% of your income. You also have unused contribution room, typically, and that shows up on your notice of assessment. And that's an important number when we're figuring out what tax strategies you might, might make the most sense for you. But if you have unused contribution, RSP contribution room, that's a good signal to say, you know, maybe I'm not saving enough. Right. And, you know, obviously there are lots of priorities in life, like educating your kids, yep. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so that tends to eat into your capacity to mm -hmm. put money away for yourself. And that's why often it's not until people are in their 50s or later, mm -hmm. where they find the amount of money they have left over to put into savings accelerates. And um, the TFSAs, which are a fairly new thing, um, what year did the TFSA start? I think it was 2009. Oh, so we're talking about 10 years ago. Yeah, the TFSAs, yeah, they, it's, it's been nine years. Nine years. Nine years. Close enough. So 2000. There we go. Um, the contributions this year, six grand, and uh, the lifetime limit, 63,500. And the, any contributions, they're not tax deductible, like an RRSP, but yeah. you don't pay any tax on the withdrawals. And hopefully over time, those contribu that contribution room increases, as I say, 6000 but looking at $500 increments uh, based on inflation. So as far as planning strategies with your TFSA, it's definitely a big component of, the, uh, our, of your retirement savings. It's, it's better for an individual... It's better, a TFSA is better than an RRSP for an individual who's in a low marginal tax bracket uh, in, in retirement rather than a high one while they're working, mm -hmm. right? And then um, it's also good for a major purchase goal. So when we think about retirement and you need to replace a vehicle and everybody has different mindset of what their vehicle is going to be, it could be a $20,000 vehicle, it might be a $60,000 vehicle, but a TFSA is a great way to look at funding a vehicle and then perhaps then replacing that money through um, withdrawals or other savings as they build up. It can also be an emergency fund too, the TFSA. So how you structure that is going to be important, but just understanding how it's going to fit into your overall retirement paycheck. And then um, under the asset-based incomes, we have, um, you know, if you've used up your RSP limit, you've maximized your TFSA, then you want to get into tax-efficient investing. And this is, in, in essence, what you want to do is avoid earning interest income and really focus on the tax-preferred income of capital gains. Mm -hmm. That would be the key. Corporate class structure might be an important part of that. And then understanding you want to have your fixed income investments inside that RRSP and TFSA now, and then your 
uh, growth investments, capital gain investments outside the RRSP. So the non-registered funds are good for as part part of your retirement. They're a great tax-efficient way to supplement your retirement income. There's things called return of capital structures. Uh, it can also be used as a, an emergency fund. It's also a good thing uh, in terms of charitable donations because when you make a charitable donation from a non-registered investment, uh, you can avoid paying tax on the capital gains. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So you get an additional hit for yourself there. So how do I get my money? You know, prior to retirement, everybody got a paycheck every two weeks. And now you've got RIF, OAS, TFSA, CPP, non-registered employer plans. So you've got all these different things. And there's kind of, I guess, a couple of ways to do that. And But I find that a lot of times people, if you, right now your money kind of I guess in a perfect world, it would go into a savings account mm-hmm. initially, and then you would draw from that savings account to your checking account an amount that you're planning to spend on a monthly basis right. for your fixed costs. And then when you need a vacation uh, amount, it would come from the savings. But it's it's um, it's not a perfect system. And one of the things that I've looked at from a strategy standpoint for reti- creating that retirement paycheck is something we call an all-in-one account. Mm-hmm. And... And again, it's a great way to sort of smooth out your cash flow, but give you access to capital when you need it in, in terms of, um, of a home equity line of credit attached to a bank account. And there's no fees associated with it, but it simplifies things because all your bills can be paid out of one account and yeah. all of your income can flow into one account. And, um, and there may be times when somebody needs a lump sum and it might be for buying a car, mm-hmm. but it may not be an appropriate time to sell an investment. Or there might be a quick opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. I need this money and I need this money like tomorrow. Yeah. And you can't get access to your funds right away. Having an all-in-one would give you access to enough to buy that vehicle or that mm-hmm. opportunity, that special purchase. And then you can go look at your investment strategy to see where am I going to take the money from to pay that back off. Right. Okay. So um, it, it basically streamlines the whole process. And then I guess the final thing, I just want to talk about a few tips around maximizing your retirement income. All right. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call and leave a message now at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Talking about tips to maximize your retirement savings. Yeah, we were talking about creating a retirement paycheck and the whole phase of heading into retirement Mm -hmm. and understanding how much can I spend? And I don't want to underspend. I don't want to overspend. What's the sweet spot? But at the end of the day, how much you can, can add and the tips towards accumulating money there's all kinds of them, and I'm going to run through some of them. And basically what Don and I do is looking at the resources that you have now. Can we restructure some of the things that you're doing in order to increase the pot of money that you're going to have mm-hmm. as you get ready for retirement? So the first thing that we're going to just, uh, one tip, contributing early. Mm-hmm. And it's simple, but a yeah. lot of times we see people are scrambling at the end of the year mm-hmm. in March to make a contribution for the previous year. We want to get into a habit of just slowly con- reversing that and getting your money in at the beginning of the year. The difference between contributing in March for your RRSP at the, at the, after 60 days versus January of the current tax year over the course of a 20-year period is about 20 grand. 
Mm-hmm. So there's 20 grand right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. It might make sense for you. Contribute regularly. Talk about it all the time. The, the benefit of dollar cost averaging. Are you adding on a monthly basis? That can enhance your return over time just due to the volatility of investments. Not, not to mention on top of it, just make sure you actually keep doing it. Yeah. When the market's down, discipline, yeah. people all of a sudden mm-hmm. stop doing it. Yeah. And we're so used to doing, we're so used to having a, um, uh, regular monthly payments for mm-hmm. bills, it just becomes a bill. It becomes a habit. Yeah, you right? don't miss so it. You don't miss it. You don't miss it, and you can and you basically live within your means with what's left over. At least you should. <laughs> <laughs> um, another one is getting you convincing you to add more as your income increases. Mm-hmm. We're talking about inflation and the increases to your income over time. It's so often I see somebody you know well, I was adding five hundred dollars a month to my RRSP, but I've been doing that for the last five years. Yeah. Well, you know what? What if you'd gone from five hundred to five fifty to six hundred to mm-hmm. six fifty? So one of the things I always talk to people is, can we increase this by twenty five bucks, by right. fifty bucks, by some amount, yeah. so that we're uh, allowing for? Because you're making more money, mm-hmm. you should be saving more. Yeah. I know I want to spend it, but (laughs) you will get to spend it later. Don't worry. Um, Considering income splitting prior to age 65. So if if before age 65, this is where spousal RRSPs can come into play. So one of the strategies we'll look at is does a spousal RRSP make sense and how you can integrate that into your retirement plan as well. And when you think about uh, spousal RRSPs, um, if you had one person who had 60,000 of income, they would pay about $12,000 of tax. If you had one person earning 40 and one person earning 20, they would only pay about $8,000 of tax. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference of almost four grand in savings by using a spousal RSP and proper income splitting. Diversifying your portfolio. So a lot of times we might see things are overly conservative, right? It could have been, as Dom was talking about earlier, maybe you were using a lot of GICs, Mm -hmm. or maybe you had a group RSP plan that was just in a conservative portfolio, or your defined benefit contribution plan was conservative. So we want to look at that and make sure that inflation is not eroding your investments, that you're maximizing the return, so don't be too conservative. The next one would be... um, effects of uh, inflation, and we know that's similar to maximizing your return, but just understanding what the costs are going to be as time goes by. And we talked a lot about that in terms of an education and what it costs to educate yourself down the road. Number eight is t- tip is d- resist dipping into your savings. You know, troubles will come. Mm-hmm. There's always some, you know, something will come along where you need access to capital. Think about how hard it was to save money. Mm. Yes. Right? How difficult and how much discipline was it to get that $10,000 saved, that $20,000 saved? And as you save money, if you take that out, think about how hard it's going to be to put it back. Yeah. Right? So there's two things. That's, but you know what? We end up as a bit of a gatekeeper that way to help either look for alternative ways to cover off that new, that unforeseen expense or that planned expense and, uh, and avoid dipping into your RRSPs. You know, you look at a, like a $20,000 withdrawal from your RRSP in, in 20 years, that's 50 grand that you mm-hmm. could have had in your RRSP in terms of generating mm-hmm. an income. So there's an enormous cost and to taking out. And RRSP then you look at that money. 50 grand, you say, okay, what's that worth? Well, at 5%, that's $2,500 a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you just you know, gave another up, 200 a month. you walked away from that by, yeah. by cashing in your RRSP early. Uh, invest with tax efficiency. And the main thing we want to think about here is looking at your structure. Once you've, once you've sort of maximized your RRSPs and TFSAs, and you're now looking at tax-preferred investments outside of the RRSPs, we want to look at 
making sure you've got capital gains and dividends on your non-registered investment and more interest income associated with your RRSPs and uh, TFSA investments. And the purpose of that is just making your overall plan more tax efficient. Mm -hmm. And we can actually demonstrate what does that mean in terms of the value of your net worth as you head into retirement as well. Mm. So, and then I guess some final thoughts. We obviously want to understand what insurance needs you might be to protect all of this. It's great to have all of that in place that you're saving enough for retirement, but should a disability come along that sidetracks you for a year or six months or longer, then uh, we've got to make sure that's protected right. so that your plan still stays in track. We want to understand what the rate of withdrawal that you're going to have to take and what you're willing to be comfortable with in terms of running out of money. Estate planning, understanding how to efficiently address how do we pass this on to the next generation. An unforeseen death, making sure that there's income protection and sustainability for your spouse or partner. What about charitable gift planning and how to do that tax efficiently as well? Uh, maybe you're going to move. So relocations to warmer climates, what does it mean to become a non-resident and how is that going to be taxed? What's the effect of taxation for you living outside of the country? And then finally, making the right investment choices is really about managing your behavior to make sure that you're not, as we talked about in 2009, you're not mm -hmm. selling when things are down yeah, and buying when things are up. Mm -hmm. And I actually saw a, a study just last week which showed um, the stock price of canopy growth, which is a, the weed stock, mm -hmm. yep. and um, the amount of money that flowed into canopy weed stock when it was doing well. And then the flows completely drop off when it goes down. Isn't so people are doing the exact opposite Isn't of what they should. Isn't and it's just bizarre. simple as that. Yeah. And you, if you actually looked at the return, it would be far less than what they think. Yeah. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. All right. Is your mortgage leaving you house poor? Well, I'm sure there's a few people out there that might be <laughs> thinking that. <laughs> and uh, you know what? It's, it's one of those things. Up, yeah. Everybody works at it, picks away at it, and, and they're taking these sacrifice. And some say it's worth it. Some say it's not, depending on, on the situation. You know, at the end of the day, one thing, it's stress. How much stress does that give you? Yeah. You know, um, and then... There's a stress and the mental health is such a big issue right now. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the mental health, that could lead to job as absenteeism, yeah. mm -hmm. um, which really isn't going to help your paying down that mortgage. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. A, that's a downward it, spiral. And uh, it, we also see the odd for sale sign and not because they couldn't afford it, but one person can't afford it because they've now split up. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> and because of all that stress, financial stress is one of the biggest reasons, if not number one reason, mm -hmm. we, most surveys say that, number one reason for marriage breakup is financial stress. Yeah. Yet you get yourself into these massive mortgages. Um, so it's it's a, one of those conundrums. <clears throat> what can you do? And everybody's eyes on that house, they want this house. And you know what? You go to the bank and what, on, what they do is the bank gives you this somewhat biased calculator that gives you an idea what the maximum you can borrow is. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to go right to the teeth in debt, this is how much you can look at. Mm -hmm. And that's the number, oh yeah, you can afford a mortgage, say $500,000. Mm -hmm. And that's what people start looking for. Mm -hmm. What this is interesting, there's a financial calculator that's actually done by Global Mail. It's called the real life ratio. 
And it's an answer to those self-interested housing calculators offered by the banks and real estate industry. And it really looks at how much can you afford without posing a significant difficult in terms of living your life Mm -hmm. and having some fun. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to go back and regret saying, geez, you know, it's great I got that house, but I had no fun. Yeah. Um, what if you got a slightly smaller house? You could have had both. Mm-hmm. And also, not to mention saving. So they went through a number of different things. And you look at your age, you look at the age of a spouse, if you are, and you're going to look at a house. And then you say, okay, here's my income. And that, these are the normal ones. So I got my income and I put after tax, 5000 a month. And then, okay, so there you start. And then you say, okay, what's your mortgage payments? Call it 2000 a month. Seems to be, that's maybe even low for a lot of them right now. Uh, monthly property taxes, 300 a month. Again, that's only 3,600 a year. That's actually probably still on the low side. Yeah. Um, monthly insurance amount on that house. These are questions that are, aren't are usually asked, but you have to pay these. Yeah. And let's say that's another 150 a month. Monthly utilities. That's another one that's not normally asked. You got to pay it though. You're not going to sit in a house with no hydro and gas in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the condo fee, if that applies. So you look at the overall housing costs and you put a number there. You also add a number of, what about home maintenance? And if you're a, if, you know, if you don't have a condo fee, that's one thing, but quite often you got to say, okay, the average is about 1% of the value of your house per year. Mm. So it may not, you might, may not feel it, it may miss a year, but certainly down the road, there'll be a new roof or something. And it'll, it'll yeah. end up being about 1% of your house per year. And you got to add that to the equation. So in this case, uh, we put in $400 mm-hmm. is what I use there. Then you say, okay, what about uh, my monthly car loan or lease? Um, Car insurance, that's obviously there. One that always is overlooked. What about daycare? Mm. Okay. Yeah. You know, and that's a killer. It's a big one. That's a huge one. I think I saw the average in Toronto was $1,700 a month. It's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that is massive. And yet your kids have to stay somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So some people will say, okay, I'll have my grandparents look after that and I'll do this. But they'll do anything to try to get that house. In reality... This money doesn't just find its way without, you know, Mm -hmm. just out of thin air. So unfortunately, that is a cost and it's going to be a cost until a certain age. And then there's even once they're done going to kindergarten, then there's after school daycare, Mm -hmm. particularly with two earners, of course. Um, What about savings? We haven't talked about that. So you have to look at savings. And if you're going to put away 10%, that would be another 500 a month. Mm -hmm. Now that may go to an RSP. We've talked about... What if we put money into an RSP and then take the tax savings from that and we apply that into the RESP for the kids mm-hmm. or the TFSA? So you're double dipping, if you will. Yeah. Um, but if you actually did save 10%, you really need to put it, as Andy said, let's put a pre-authorized check and let's have it saved right off the get-go. So then you put all these together. So I, I, I happen, this is just a, a scenario I came up with and not a real life one, so... No identity theft here at all. <laughs> and it's really, this worked out to the ratio from this calculator, which you can just Google. Go Google real life ratio calculator. And my this ratio came in at 76.61%. Okay. So that uh, said, okay, what does that mean? Well, if you're 75% or less, it says, all right, you're in. You can do this. But if you're between 76 and 80, which is this case, Proceed with caution. Mm-hmm. It's doable, but eh, you might want to check that out to see mm-hmm. if you can cut anything. If you're 81 to 85, go back and see if where you can cut costs. Mm-hmm. And if you are 86 plus with this ratio, 
financial stress overload, yeah. um, you are going to go drive yourself crazy. Mm-hmm. You will get a renter. You'll have to do something because you cannot do it. So in this particular case, I ended up with 23.39 left over. And this is the extra percentage of your paycheck left over for things such as food. Oh, yeah. Okay, you got to eat still. <laughs> Clothing, <laughs> transportation, kids' activities, mm. rep sports, just any sports, ballet, art class, whatever, entertainment. I was going to say, forget about entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're done. That's, your, that's taking your kids to practice. That's yeah, right. that, that's your entertainment, hanging out <laughs> with all game. the other parents that are uh, house poor. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, travel, life and health insurance. We've well, got to get life insurance in there too because you've mm-hmm. got all this debt. You need to make sure you're protected. You have, twenty three in this particular case, 23.39%. It really gives a far better holistic view on what your life will be after you bought that house. Mm-hmm. And I... I, I really suggest all listeners check out that, that website. And again, it's called the Real Life Ratio. I didn't invent this. It's, a, it's just a tool that I guess came off uh, the Globe Mail, but a great tool to help you get that second opinion. All right. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks very Thanks much, Scott. Have a great week.